Well, good morning again, and we, we, have, we have begun a series in the book of Romans, Look What God Has Done. Now, we're going to be going week by week, a chapter at a time, so you can be reading along, you can be reading through, I'd encourage you to read the whole book of Romans each week, just read through a few chapters each day, read through the book in a week, and so every week you have read through the whole book, you're getting the big picture, and each week as well, several times, read the individual chapter that we're focusing on that week, whether it's before or after or both from that Sunday, but be reading as we go, and as you spend that extra time reading, uh, the Lord is going to use His Word. As you, as you go deeper into the gospel of what God has done for us in Christ, it cannot help but bring you to that point of praise in Romans 11, that, that point of, of glory in Romans 12 of presenting our bodies as, as living sacrifice in, in a grateful response of worship. Uh, God's truth will change you. That I can promise. I can't say exactly how. I don't know the exact need. But the Spirit of the living God does, and He will use His truth. That I can assure you. Now, now in Romans chapter 1, I, I have an outline for the first uh, eight chapters of Romans that I like to say in one sentence. It's a, it's a, I know it's very concise, uh, but eight chapters in one sentence goes something like this. The gospel for lost humanity justified by faith in Christ to new life in this flesh by the power of God's Spirit. Now that means that our, our, our theme, our overall topic in Romans chapter 1 then would be the gospel. What, why is the gospel called good news? What is so good about the gospel? Why is the gospel so good. This is God's good, good news. Another title that I have been toying with, has been rattling around my head through the week, because of some elements here in chapter 1, are a 3D gospel for the 2D Christian. A three-dimensional gospel for two-dimensional Christians. Now, what do I mean by, what do I mean by, by a, a two-dimensional Christian, first of all? Well, we can easily tend to think in terms of us and them, of, of um, saved and lost, of righteous and sinners, believers and unbelievers. And those are not untrue categories. And in fact, every person in the world is either in Adam, separated from God, and living under the present plight of condemnation and fear of death and bondage to sin all their lives, or they are from Adam in Christ. Now they are in Christ by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who came in their place, died for them, and rose again, that they are then in Christ. They are not only escaping condemnation, but they had been lifted by God back into right relationship with Him. And that right relationship with Him is not only in time, in our mortality, but it is for eternity. It is for eternal life as heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as God's own forever. There are only two kinds of people in that sense. And yet if we think merely two-dimensional, sometimes we, we think two-dimensional in terms of God's truth, and especially as we approach Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1 has a lot to say about humanity, 
And it is sinful humanity. It is broken humanity. It is shameful things. It is unrighteousness. And we, we, we tend to think in terms that this must be about them. Well, there's a 3D gospel. And by 3D gospel, a three-dimensional gospel, I, I, I mean that the, you can think about the gospel addressing three different facets Three different kinds of needs that we have and frameworks by which we view the world, by which we understand things. For instance, there is a righteousness, justice, judgment framework. That's one dimension. The Western world thinks in this legal framework, this justice framework, this things are right and things are wrong framework. The Western world, the U.S. and uh, Europe tend to function within that framework. A lot of the world, however, functions in a different framework, a shame versus honor framework. To, to fall would be to bring shame upon oneself. And to be, to, to be restored, one needs to recover honor. You cannot recover honor yourself. Somebody who has honor must restore honor to you often at cost to themselves. Most of the world functions in a shame-honor um, shame framework. In fact, that's, that's increasing in our culture, particularly in shifts between generations. There's much more of an honor-shame dimension and dynamic going on in all culture, all, our culture today than we, especially those of us who are older, realize is a big factor today in our culture, honor and shame. What do I feel that others feel about me? That's honor, shame. A third dimension is fear and power. And in the spiritual realm, fear and power are not thought of as much in our secular society where we deal with things in a material way. We think about things in material terms. A lot of the world as well thinks about things in terms of spiritual power. And there is, a, there is a dynamic in which even we, look at the movies that are out there. We are afraid of things spiritual. Uh, we do not, we sometimes, there's a warm and fuzzy, fuzzy uh, movie or show like Touched by an Angel where, where a spiritual being from God does positive things for somebody. But typically, our associations with the spiritual realm include fear because we are but mortal. And uh, the spiritual realm certainly has more power than we do. And we're, it's easy for mortals to be victimized by spiritual powers. Much of the world thinks in those kind of terms. Fear and power, particularly spiritual power. Fear and power uh, play out in, uh, in other dimensions, economic and political within our society as well. These three dimensions... Guilt and innocence, or righteousness and judgment, as well as shame and honor, as well as fear and power, are all addressed by the gospel. Humanity has transgressed sin, has done unrighteously, and therefore does unrighteousness, unrightness. We, we do the wrong things. We are guilty. We bring shame upon ourselves in our relationship with God. We are fallen. 
We did not climb higher, we fell. That's a shame concept. And we are in fear of death, subject to bondage all our lives. We fear death because of what comes next in a spiritual realm. And we are powerless to control on our own. That's humanity's plight, and it's addressed in the gospel. In fact, it was addressed. That's why I like that term, a three-dimensional gospel. It's the fullest gospel for two-dimensional Christians. Because Paul is writing this section not to, we're going we're gonna, to, in fact, we heard about it already. In fact, in the first service when, when, when Josh and Danielle and their kids were up here with them and Josh was holding his young son at a point when he was reading some of the condemnable parts, the parts about humanity's sin, his son was pointing out at the congregation. <laughs> I thought, man, that is perfect. And I forgot to say anything about it the first hour. But it was perfect. This is, this is not for those people out there. You see, this is for you. Paul is not writing to the people out on the street in Rome. Paul is writing to Christians in the church, those that God has called who are saints in Christ Jesus. But we are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. We need the gospel. Paul has much to say about what they should do, how they should live. He doesn't really get to it until chapter 12. Until then, he's spending all this time talking about, look what God has done for us. That only results, leaves us in worship, almost involuntarily in worship, when as the gospel grabs hold of our hearts. And if we don't find ourselves there, it's because the gospel hasn't grabbed hold of our hearts. Soak in it. It will change you. And then he gets to chapter 12. I urge you, therefore, by these mercies of God, look what God has done. Present your body's living sacrifice. Live what God has done. So then, he's writing to Christians as he says these things because we need to understand That not only does humanity in general have a problem, but we have a problem, and the answer to it is the gospel. In the Missions Connection yesterday, in one of the workshops, one of the breakouts, Bill Hall made this statement. He was talking about discipleship, and he started out with the need. He said, one of the most provable statements in the world is that we, all of us, have a problem. One of the most provable statements, all you got to do is open open the newspaper or, or, or check out the news on your phone any day. And it's obviously apparent within the world, we have a problem. We, all of us. In fact, we are the problem. I have met the enemy and they are us, right? We have a problem. The gospel is God's answer to humanity's problem. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. He says, I am ready to come to you in Rome also, verse 15, for I am not ashamed. These fours, because of, these connectives are going to flow all through this chapter. They'll be be there a lot in Romans. Paul's writing very logically. Actually, the Roman culture had a pattern of interacting, reasoning, and using logic in in their dialogues concerning their gods and what their gods ought to do for them. And so Paul's speaking right into that language with his logic. It's not just a Paul thing, a rabbinical thing. It suits the audience that he's writing to. It suits our Western audience well also. So look for those connections. So I'm ready to come, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not concerned that this gospel can't measure up, cannot meet the need, will not do what it promises to do. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, is manifest, is made known, is unveiled. Righteousness? Shame? Power, it is the power of God. All those dimensions are right here in this gospel. The gospel is not shameful. In fact, the gospel is honor-giving. The gospel is powerful for rescuing. The gospel is the honorable story of a sacrificial hero, the innocent who gives himself in the place of the guilty, The one who is able to do for us what no one else could do in order to meet the needs of everyone else. It's a wonderful story. It is a heroic story. It's the kind of story that other stories in our background are are modeled after. And none of them are quite this good. None of them come from this high and reach this deep. There's nothing to be ashamed of here. Our unrightness springs from suppressing truth, from from, uh, how we respond to what we know about God. The Bible declares that humanity knows God. It said, as we read earlier, that we know of God, but we have turned away in rebellions. Not in ignorance, not from what I didn't know, but from what we did know of God, we push that down. We ignore it and do what we want anyway. It's not that God is too severe. It's not that God is too particular. It's not that God is too picky. It's that I have turned in relation to his truth. The creator is seen in his creation, it says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The earth shows his handiwork. Even within ourselves we see it. Earlier, with much more basic knowledge, humanity could know of the Creator. As they would make idols with their own hands, the question must arise, who made my hands? Even today, with the mechanics of DNA that gives lie to the notion of evolution and testifies to the reality of an intelligent design by a Creator. The, 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 the essentials of God are known being evident by that which is made. That's what God's truth said. But humanity's descent, it comes from departure from God and his truth. And that occurs, you read about it in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, there's there's an intriguing parallel between Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and further on in the book of Genesis. In fact, Genesis, the book, begins with God in a garden and Genesis ends with a man in a coffin in slavery in Egypt. It's a wonderful story with a tragic ending and then God. And then God steps in and delivers out of Egypt, right? Into new life in his promise. And there you see the echoes and the foreshadowings of the fullness of the gospel already lived out in human experience. But the early, the fall of Genesis, it's, it's modeled in what Paul says here. He has these things in mind as he's writing here. That there there is a move that we're going to see, a departure from God's truth that continues with the same intentional departure from God and his truth through human history. 
the fall of humanity, as described in Genesis, is played out through human history in experience and even in our own lives. Now with that in mind, let me read from verse 19 again. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. They are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Did you get the creeping things part? That comes right out of that garden story, doesn't it? Therefore God gave them up to the lust, the desires of their own hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. He cannot get that out of his head. There is a truth about God that has been revealed and humanity has a response to it and it's away from it. You will have to discipline yourself if you are going to read Romans through in a week. It won't just happen, folks. We still have an inclination to wander somewhere else. Discipline yourself to spend time in this book, and, and, and uh, it will make a difference. The, the, this, this, there's a move from truth to lie, from fruitful to futile, from light to dark, from wisdom to foolishness, from the glory of God to a creeping, conniving serpent, from the immortal God to lifeless idolatry. That's the pattern. That's the flow that Paul is laying out here. In the gospel, humanity is instead, what? Turned to God from idols. It's turned about. It's reversed. We're turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. God allows humanity. It says he gave them up. Or he gave them over in some translations. God allows humanity to live in the landscape of their own design. We cannot ask God, why are you doing this? We cannot ask God, God, where have you gone? When we're the ones that left. When we're the ones that ran away from home. And God will allow us for time to live in that landscape of our own design. God does not shame us, we have shamed ourselves. God is the one instead who lifts, who honors, who restores, who accepts us, receives us back to himself. How does he do this? Pay attention here. He lifts and restores us back to himself. He makes our wrong right. He exerts his power above all power to do that by dishonoring, shaming forsaking, judging, and condemning his own son instead in our place. That's a, wow, that's a hero story. That is not a story to be ashamed of. That is not a story to keep back. That is not something to, uh, that is something to shout from the rooftop. This is news like no other news. This is exactly what the world that has a problem needs Look what God has done. God gave them over. We want to blame tragedy and brokenness, its results on God. Because God is sovereign. See, we still know that. But humanity decreed ourselves sovereign. We, said, we sang with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And look where it got us. 
That's what's going on here. God at times says, well, this, go your way, but this is what it looks like. God gave them over. Gave them over to dishonoring their own bodies. As we read further, and we see as he starts talking about, about women with men, women, and then men with men doing that which is shameful. We think this dishonoring of their bodies among themselves is talking about that. God seems to have a, a, a predisposition, a fascination about sex. That's not what's going on here. When he says they dishonor their bodies among themselves, he's not merely talking about what he says in the next verses. He's saying, he's talking about everything he says in the following verses through verse 32. You see, to dishonor, we, to, to dishonor our bodies is done in any of the self-will, self-determined sin that we participate in that is the exact opposite of what? Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, by the Romans 1 through 11, to do what? To present your bodies a living sacrifice. In Romans 6, he's going to say to yield your bodies as instruments of righteousness unto God. That that's what our bodies were created for. We were created in the image of God to walk with God, to be in relationship with him, to serve him, walk in his ways before and represent him in all that we do and are to the rest of his creation. And that's what we left. That's what we stepped away from. But that's what it is to honor God in our bodies. And anything that is self-willed, as polite and acceptable in proper proud culture as it is, is dishonoring God in our bodies. It's that inclusive. And it changes the way we think about sin, doesn't it? And we have to change the way we think about sin broader than a two-dimensional framework if we are going to rightly understand what it is that God has done for me. Jesus, in contrast, he didn't serve himself. He served his Father rather than himself or even us. Now, that, that last statement is starting. You think, certainly, yes, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to serve us. And yet he came to serve his Father. He didn't come to serve humans. In fact, when John, we came to John the Baptist to identify himself with sinful humanity and thus join in this baptism of sinful humanity, John says, no, I should, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus didn't yield to John. He said, no, 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 John, do it my way. That's Bob's short version. When, 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 when he's told his disciples that he is going to be rejected, that he is going to be crucified, he is going to die, on the third day he'll raise again. What does Peter say? No, Lord. No, not, not, not to you, Lord. He doesn't yield to Peter. He says, get thee behind me. You are not thinking of the things of God, but of the things of men. You want this on human terms. God is doing far much more than you realize. He didn't serve himself. He said, not my will, but thy will be done. He didn't serve what others wanted him to do. He served his Father. And in doing so, the result was honorable sacrifice rather than dishonorable shame. Let's look then at verse 26 and 27. 
It's here in the passage. We need to deal with it. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Here's one example. Now, let me tell you right up front. Why does he give this example? He said that that which is known of God is evident in creation. And there are certain things that in some ways are more obvious than others. There are in in Greco-Roman culture... This kind of sin was practiced, but with a wink and a nod. It was not openly celebrated and openly accepted. accepted. There was no same-sex marriage thought of in Greco-Roman culture. That's, that's new to us in the last couple of decades. That's new to us in humanity, worldwide, ever in experience on a broad societal scale. It's never, we are, that's, that's a new thing for us. But, but this, this was a practice, but it was recognized not merely that's something sinful. He could have come up with all kinds of examples of that, murder probably being the best example. He uses this one because it's clearly contrary to nature, he says, contrary to creation. And what has he said? The things that we know are evident to us in creation. There are certain things that occur naturally and biologically and from one generation to the next and how babies are made that I'm not going to go into this morning. But it is obvious in the created order and it always has been. And there have been, been then ideas and argued against and it doesn't mean that and this is now and we understand things differently now. That last statement I can agree with. We understand things differently now in humanity and in society, but that doesn't mean we are closer to the truth. Could not understanding things differently mean that we're farther from the truth, at least as far as God's truth is concerned? And that's what Paul is saying here, and he's using an obvious example because of its close connection to the physical creation. That's why that example here. Now, my purpose then is, is, is not to talk in particular about one kind of sin, although because it's in the passage, we don't want to ignore it, and this is an issue in our society that we need to consider some things about. But exchanging truth for a lie will always lead us into error, into wrong thinking, into sin. And when I exchange God's truth for some other so-called truth, it will lead me into into opposition with God's will and that will then that will be sin it will lead me into shame it will lead me away from God's power into fear and hiding even as it did in the garden of eden it will end up leaving me to fend for myself at the expense of others even as it did in genesis chapter 4 when cain kills his brother in order to establish his position because he's left to himself to do it. Or so he thinks because that's what he believes, because he believes a lie instead of God's invitation to truth. Okay, so if I'm caught in shameful sin of any kind, and you can, you can think in your own head what that is, you know what you wrestle with right now, but I, I can tell you this, it is connected in some way to what you are thinking. It is connected in some way to what you are believing about yourself in contrast to what God says about you. It is connected in some way into what you think doing this will provide for you, how it will medicate you, how it will feel better about yourself, how you deserve this little transgression. 
and you think it will grant you something that will be of some relief from the moment that you're feeling, and yet all of that is a lie. It's not true. And so the time to address sin is not in the moment and why I did that, but when the thoughts start. We take our thoughts in captivity to Christ. We, we are renewed, Paul says in 12.2, by we, we live a new life by the renewing of our minds so that we may live out, we may prove in our experience that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That comes out of the renewing of our mind, the changing of our thinking, the realigning of ourselves toward God's truth. That's why we need this book. We wander around in our own head without God's truth, and we can't help but wander away. We are broken people in a broken world with all kinds of different propensities toward all kinds of different sins. Now, here's the point. The propensity to sin does not put guilt on me. The propensity to any sin is, 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 is going to lead to the temptation to that sin, but it does not cause me to sin. The sin itself is what brings guilt and shame upon me. We can all embrace that in our human mortality, we are broken in all kinds of different ways. We, are, we do not all sin alike, but we are all alike sinners. We recognize that, and so now what do we do with that? That, that, we, we, that we don't, let's take then the, the, the notion of same-sex attraction. Let's compare that to somebody else who has a propensity toward um, compulsive, addictive behavior. Let's compare that to somebody else who might have a, a, a propensity toward, a tendency toward violent outbursts. To have that propensity or temptation toward violent outbursts or addictive behavior or same-sex attraction, none of that is a sin. To act out on any of them is a sin. We tend to make different kinds of categories and, and tolerate with our own wink and nod, some things rather than others. But all of that is contrary to the truth of God, and all of it is sin. And it's interesting, when you read the end catalog, the compiling together of sins that Paul describes at the end of his chapter, it's a mismatch. And the sexual sins that he talked about earlier are not even in the mix. That's not his point. The point is that he, he, he brings gossip in, along with other things that you would think were far worse. He brings disobedience to parents in, which you teens would think there are many other things that are far worse than that. And yet all of that together is the same. It is departure from God's truth. It is a following of the lie that is the acting out of our own rebellion and our propensity to sin in all kinds of different ways. To, to think about the differing wrongness of certain sins is to miss the point of the passage. I want to just pause here and tell you about a friend of mine. Now, he's one of those friends from my bookshelves. I've never met Wesley Hill, but um, I, I was greatly blessed by his story, his book. Wesley Hill was a, was a, um, uh, a, a student 
in seminary himself studying for ministry when he really, this came to a head for him in his own wrestling. He tried to, he tried to suppress this as long as he could, but he, but he could not. He tried to change it. He could not change it. He almost, he actually thought, I think, in some ways that devoting himself further to God in service would somehow change this in him. And yet it didn't change a fundamental temptation that he had towards sin, which was to be attracted to other men. Same-sex attraction. He tried various kinds of therapies and, and tried to change this. Uh, he was not able to. It didn't change. He determined along the way, he came to this conclusion in a nutshell, and I strongly encourage you to read his story, that, that he has a propensity in this direction that for some people God changes it. For some people, God takes it away. Some people smoking, they have smoked all their lives. They come to faith in Jesus, and at some point they say, God, would you just take this from me? And God does, and they never touch another cigarette. Others say, well, yeah, to quit, quit smoking, that's easy. I do it all the time. And they can't quit. And they pray, and it doesn't go away. And he determined, I can't change his propensity. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to marry then. I cannot act out on this propensity because doing so would be sinful. I cannot pretend it's not there and marry a woman and not be able to give her the genuine from the heart affection and treasuring and, and physical uh, attraction that she deserves and ought to have from her husband. I can't give that genuinely. So he determined that he was washed and waiting. That's the title of his story, Washed and Waiting. He takes it out of 1 first, first Corinthians chapter 6, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified by the blood of Jesus. And he understands that he's washed from all of his sins, all kinds. And he understands that he's waiting to the full experience of that in our glorification described to us in Romans chapter 8. We're not there yet. I'm a little ahead of ourselves. And yet, all of us long for it. All of us wait for that in one propensity or another. And we ought to understand that way as we engage with people around us. And I would suspect that every one of you have somebody close to you that you know, maybe in your extended family or some other connections, that does wrestle with this. And it's a strong issue. It's a very personal issue. And how we approach that as different from any other sin will separate them from us. To deny the, the, that acting in that way is sin. But the fact that they are no different from us, that all of us have a propensity in our brokenness that would lead us to sin, that we must join Wesley in washed and waiting. A couple of other authors along this whole topic area that I would, I would uh, uh, strongly recommend to you would be Rosaria Butterfield. One of her books is titled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it's a very apt title. Other than that, I recommend the book. You, you'd read more about it if you found, if you found that online. Mark Yarhouse gives a very, one of his books, um, Compassion Without Compromise, helps you navigate this issue with people uh, in a compassionate way without compromising truth. So I'll leave those up for a little bit just so you, if you want to jot those names down, those, those can be helpful to you. Because my point wasn't to spend a whole lot of time talking about this today. The, the, the chapter moves us in a, in a trajectory. 
And this is one of those things that pops out of it, but it's re very relevant in our society. But the trajectory of the chapter was knowing God in creation, verse 20, to a disregard of God, not honoring him as God, in verse 21, choosing alternative gods instead, whether ourselves or others, verse 23, which leads to serving the, create, the creature, the created being of one or another, rather than the creator. This is why sin is the opposite of worship. It leads to serving our own bodies and our own desires and our own appetites as the chief and ultimate end rather than serving God. It's, it, it turns us inward to all kinds of human evil when we disregard God and serve ourselves and thus diminish, diminish ourselves as well as others. Because we were created for something different than that. We were created for something other than that. We were created for something far greater. To be the demonstration of the very image and likeness of God to all of his creation. And in rebellion, we stepped down from that and chose our own way. God has not shamed us. We have shamed ourselves. God has not left us. We have departed. Thank you very much. Recognizing our shared fallenness gives us a humility then that this story is about all of us. And that gives us a humility and graciousness to one another as broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. I don't say that about people who don't yet know Jesus. I say that about all of us. We are all of us. Like the friend on my bookshelf, Wesley Hill, we are all broken people in a broken world in desperate need of our Savior. Broken in, in manifest different ways, but all the same broken in desperate need of our Savior. And God has given us a Savior. Not just a Savior in the technical, judicial, righteous, right and wrong, judgment and forgiveness sense but also a Savior to lift us out of shame into honor. He's given us a whole new standing in Christ, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He has lifted us by his own power out of our helplessness. And we yet feel helpless to sin, and yet by the power of his Spirit within us, he says he will give life to these mortal bodies. That is a gospel of power. That is a gospel of honor. That is a gospel of righteousness. God's righteousness in lifting us to rightness. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Sin shames. The gospel brings glory. God's glory to us, and that glorifies God. The gospel makes humanity that was spiraled in wrong right again. The gospel takes humanity that was shamed in sin and lifts us in his honor. The power of God for those who were powerless. You come with a gospel of ultimate love. Don't let anybody label you a hater. You come with a gospel for all peoples, anybody and everyone. There is nobody that needs to be left out of this. Don't let anybody label you a bigot or intolerant. You come with a gospel of forgiveness. Don't let anybody label you judgmental. Do you remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, anybody, everybody, will not perish but have eternal life. Remember the next verse? 
For the Son of God did not come into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. It is not a gospel of judgment. But that the world should be saved through him. The world has condemned itself, has shamed itself, has left itself helpless. And God has said and has come and said, I in my power will help you. I will lift you. I will make you what you cannot make yourself. You come with the gospel of truth and wisdom. Don't let anybody label you foolish, simple, or narrow-minded. And this gospel, even from where we came, is not about others. It's, it's about us. Look at chapter 2. I told you before who Paul was writing to. Let me remind you who he's writing for by just peeking ahead into next week. After he just says that the, that, um, the, the um, righteous decree of God against any who practice these things is to deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, based on that, you, you have no excuse any one of you, everyone who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you who judge practice the very same kinds of things. Wow. He's doing something that the prophet Amos does in the first chapter of Amos. He spends this, bit, this long series talking about three sins and for four of all these surrounding countries. Finally, the seventh one, he gets to Judah, and he's writing to Israel, the northern kingdom. He gets to Judah for, for three sins and for four. God's judgment is coming on Judah. And the people of Israel who are hearing the prophet are saying, Amen. Time for the closing benediction and to head to the foyer for tea and biscuits. But he's not done yet. And he says, the eighth one, for three sins and for four, Israel. That's who he's going all along. In fact, in Amos 1 and 2, the only one of any of those countries that he actually spends time going through three sins and then a fourth one is the last one, Israel. That's where he was going all along. The other, he mentions one sin or maybe two and then rushes on. He's getting them to agree with the premise of the righteousness of God's judgment before they realize that God's judgment is upon them. It's called the rhetoric of entrapment. That's what Paul's using here. You see it in another place, a place that's fairly well known in the Bible, the story of David and David and Bathsheba. And David sins, and the prophet David comes to him. And the pro and uh, I'm sorry, the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan comes to King David. Now David's the king. What's a prophet to do here? <laughs> So the prophet tells him this sweet little story about this guy who had just one little lamb and the rich old farmer that had all kinds of lambs. He wanted a lamb for dinner and so he went to the, the poor man who just had but the one. It was, it was his own dear pet. And he took that one lamb and he ate that one instead. What a brute. And David was a shepherd boy. And David still had the heart of a shepherd boy. And Nathan spoke God's truth right into his heart. And, he, and he, he decreed a pronouncement of judgment against such a man. And what does Nathan say in response? He puts his finger right on the king's chest and he says, you're the man. It's the rhetoric of entrapment. He gets David to agree with the lostness of the condition before he tells David, by the way, that's your condition. That's what God has done for us here. In Romans chapter 1, we read it and we might think it's about others. And it is. 
but it's also about us. This is where the gospel has rescued us. And we so needed it. And we need to soak in that, and that will give us a gracious humility toward others because the gospel is simply this. The gospel of God is one homeless wretch telling another, not where the local shelter is, you know, with the big red cross on top. The gospel is one homeless wretch telling another where to find true home and family. Yeah, there's a shower and a kitchen. But there is belonging and acceptance and there is purpose and there is life's work that they were created for. That's what the gospel is telling us. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is something we have got to share with people around us with the same gracious humility of a homeless wretch who has been brought home. Let's pray. Father, Would you do that? Lord, would you give us the graciousness to be able to understand that from where you have saved us, that we might be used by you in telling such a good, good story to the people around us that need it. Lord, let us live it toward them, even as we heard of a small group doing For those who already know the gospel, let us live it toward them in ways that remind them of you. For those who need to know you and come home, let us live it before them and tell them the truth in a way that gently and yet persuasively and to their own heart calls them home. Father, would you do that in your power through us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.